Well, we find ourselves again this morning uh, back in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, where we read these things. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. You remember that finally meant, uh, in addition to, in, in light of the things that I have spoken, this, these were not his final words, but a change of subject. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul has hung out a warning sign. There are a group of believers, professing believers, I should say, in the church of Philippi who are corrupting the gospel, ultimately trying to add works to faith and uh, circumcision to grace. And Paul has told us three times we need to beware of people who preach a different gospel. And he says, really, that not only are we to beware of the false circumcision, but we ourselves are the true circumcision. And this, this raises the question, what is a true Christian? And someone has said that Really, this verse is a great summary. It's a one-verse summary of what it is to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But all this talk of circumcision, if you've grown up in the church, you're so used to the word because it's such a common biblical theme that maybe you don't even think about it really and you know what you know about it. And I, I try to imagine what it is to attend a service like this and a text like this to read through the Bible as someone who isn't much affiliated with it and, and, and think to themselves, why does this word keep coming up as often as it does? This is a really difficult thing to grasp, really what it means to avoid the false circumcision or Paul's designation of the true believer that he is true circumcision if you don't have a grasp of what biblical circumcision is all about. It's a very, very familiar biblical theme, isn't it? And if you get it, you're going to not only know and understand this text, but you will grab with greater clarity the rest of the Bible because the term does show up so much. And I want to dive right in this morning. We've got a long way to go here today in the next hour, but I hope it will be helpful to you. I want to begin by giving you some background on circumcision. Don't owe brother me yet, okay? We're going to be all right. This will be worth it. It will be profitable. I want to give you really uh, four words to kind of hang this idea of circumcision on. Just four words. When you think of circumcision from now on out, if you can draw these four words back, you'll get the gist of it. The first word is covenant. Circumcision is a sign and a seal, says Paul in Romans 4, of God's covenant relationship that was established with Abraham and his seed. Now, I figure most of you get that already. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to flip through some passages here. We'll, we'll actually pick up one primary passage for each word. 
Genesis chapter 17 is, is where we find circumcision coming into the biblical picture for the first time. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, I'll say it again, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my, here's our word, covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. Notice that Abraham now is named in the context of this new rite called circumcision. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. These are key words, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and all your descendants after you the land of your sojourners all the land of Canaan, for it is an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. There's a key word right there. A sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or is bought with money from any foreigner who is not one of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off, no pun intended. From his people, he has broken my covenant. This is no light matter. This is no small thing. And we need to grasp it. Circumcision was given as a sign that God had committed himself to this group of people, to Abraham and his descendants and all who would dwell in their midst. And it signified really that Yahweh was their God and they were his people. It was a sign of a relationship that God established unilaterally with Israel and with Abraham. It was to distinguish the Israelites from all other nations. It was a, a mark that designated those who were Jews and all the others who dwelt among them, all who were slaves or part of the household, whether they be physically or a bloodline Jew or not. All of them were set apart as God's people, as holy unto God. Now it's intriguing to consider, isn't it? Uh, uh, something I have thought throughout my life, never voiced it, 
But why that sign? And why there? I could come up with a lot of other potential signs. Did you note as we were reading through the repetitive use of words like descendant? It shows up in verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 12. The word generations shows up in verse 9 and verse 12. Multiply you exceedingly, verse 2. Multitudes of nations. Fruitful shows up in verse 6. The whole promise that God had made to Abraham is seemingly complicated by the fact that Abraham and Sarah were not able to reproduce. You remember that. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God leads Abraham out, and this is just a a further reiteration of all that happened in chapter 12. God leads Abraham out, and he says, cast your eyes on the star, so shall your descendants be. Count them if you can, which he couldn't, neither can you. Stars are vast, stars are bazillions of them, and Abram is sitting there listening to God and this promise that he and his wife, now in their 90s, were going to bear children and have that many offspring. It seemed ludicrous. And yet, Abram believed God. That means he believed his promise. He believed the word that he had spoken. He believed in the faithful God who is Yahweh. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And part of that promise was this, one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. This might hint at the reason why God puts the sign of the covenant at the very procreative point of all that God had promised, if you want to think about that from a human vantage point. Abraham was promised land, and he was promised a blessing, and he was promised a seed. And that seed, as we know, is Christ. And so Abram, now Abraham, becomes the father of all of those who believe. And that is a very, very important point. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant relationship that God made with Abraham and his posterity that is entered into by faith in God through Jesus Christ. And this is what the Jews had lost. They had the sign, they lost the meaning, the heart of it, And Paul will deal with this extensively in Romans 2 and Romans 4 and the whole book of Galatians. The rite of circumcision had very, very important ethical meaning for the Jews. It signified their relationship or their responsibility to serve as the holy people of God. Uh, God had called them as his special servants to, to broadcast light to the world, to show what it was to be a godly and holy people among a pagan, rebellious world. And so God instructs Abraham to circumcise every male child in his household in the flesh of your foreskin to do it on the eighth day, and that is the very day that a name was also given to that male offspring. 
And as we read, any male who was not circumcised was cut off from his people and regarded as a covenant breaker. Now, the Hebrew people became enamored with this sign and they began to take great pride in it, in circumcision itself. In fact, it became somewhat of a badge of their spiritual and national superiority. It became a means by which Jews separated themselves from the rest of the world and took on this this mindset of exclusivity. Gentiles, you'll remember in Ephesians, became regarded by the Jews as the uncircumcision. It was a term of disrespect, implying that their non-Jewishness meant that they were outside the circle of God's love. They came to trust the sign itself, ultimately, for their standing with God. The The Jew believed that his membership among the Jewish nation was evidenced as evidenced by his being circumcised, meant that his salvation was certain. Listen to commentator Charles Hodge as he quotes some Jewish sources directly. Quote, our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. Circumcision saves from hell. Another quote, God swore to Abraham that no one who is circumcised would be sent to hell, end quote. And another rabbi, Abraham sits before the gates of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. Now, brothers and sisters, you'd know right what to do with that if I were to change one word in those sentences. Let me read it to you. Our rabbis have said that no baptized man will see hell. I'm sorry, Yes, that's correct. I mean, it's not, uh, the thief on the cross wants to argue with me right now, you know. (laughs) Baptism saves from hell. You'd say, no way. God swore to Abraham that no one who was baptized should be sent to hell. You'd understand it. You need to hear it that way. This was an addition to the gospel. This was Jesus plus circumcision is what recommends you to God. And so the Jew, for the Jew, circumcision became the equivalent, really, of the guarantee of salvation. Go get the surgery, you're in. And their confidence was placed there in that religious right and not in the gracious work of God in Christ. You see, it never was just to be this physical thing. It was was a sign of the reality. And you know this, signs are symbolic. Every sign you've ever seen points to something else, the greater reality. This was nothing more than a sign, and it was to point to something. And that leads us to our, our second point this morning, and that is, What is the meaning of the sign? Well, secondly, first it was a sign of the covenant. Secondly, it was a sign of cleansing, of covenant and of cleansing. Metaphorically, circumcision was to to be a symbol of moral cleanliness. It's not in the sense that we might tend to think about it 
You know, modern medicine has demonstrated that there is hygienic value to circumcision. And most in the West, at least, would acknowledge that. But there's nothing really about that in the Old Testament. It's like when people come up and say, well, you know, God said don't eat pork because pork can carry trigonosis and you can get really sick from it. That may have, in fact, been part of his rationale, but you're not deriving the disease aspect out of the Old Testament stipulation. So it is here. You're not driving anything about the way we tend to think about it in modern medicine out of the Old Testament. This is talking about, it's symbolic of moral cleansing. Turn over to, we'll just go forward here to the book of Leviticus in chapter 26, and I'm gonna move quickly so as not to run out of time here at the end. Leviticus 26 and verse 40. The Lord says, if they confess their iniquity, he's speaking about Israel here, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. Do you see the iniquity going on here? Do you see the uncleanness? He says, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they make amends for their iniquity. Do you see the cleansing aspect of this? He accuses them of having an uncircumcised heart as evidenced by their rebellion and their disobedience. And he says, but on the other hand, if they will circumcise their hearts, I will be good to them. For the land will be abandoned by them. Verse 43, and will make up for its Sabbaths while it, while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Very important words when we get to Ezekiel 36. Notice what they do with his ordinances and his statutes. They reject them and they abhor them. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember them for the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I may be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. The Lord calls the Jews out for their rebellion and it was characterized as an uncircumcision of heart. They were full of iniquity. They rejected his ordinances and they abhorred his statutes. And the Lord would still in his covenant faithfulness be faithful to them. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Uncircumcision is emblematic of corruption. MacArthur points out that there may be some correlation here between circumcision and it being on the, the male reproductive organ, not as it relates so much to covenant and the, and the eventual seed as it relates to sin and depravity. That's possible, I suppose. 
The idea of corruption from conception, right? David says that he was, he was conceived in sin. And this is the way, of course, that, that mankind passes down a, a, a sin nature. It's significant, isn't it, that Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit, of a virgin, apart from any male seed. Man is defiled and he produces that which is defiled, demonstrating the need for future cleansing. And so either way, whether there's connection here or not, what is clear is this, that it's emblematic of corruption and of rebellion. This is why Jeremiah says, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. You know, when the people entered the land of promise, God told them, get this, that, that Canaanite fruit was uncircumcised fruit. It was unholy fruit. And for three years, they could not eat it. Actually, for four. In the fourth year, that entire year's produce was set apart as holy unto the Lord. It had then become sanctified so that in the fifth year, it was circumcised fruit and they could eat of it. So clearly, there is this sense of, 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 of holiness, of cleanliness, of sanctification that is tied up with the idea of circumcision. And a dullness of heart and a dullness of hearing. In fact, the scriptures speak about uncircumcised ears and uncircumcised hearts. Listen to Stephen in his final sermon right before they stoned him, his closing words and really the straw that broke the camel's back as an indictment of the Jewish leadership. In Jesus' day, Stephen says this boldly, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ear are always resisting the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did. And that was enough as far as those men were concerned further demonstrating their uncircumcised hearts. So circumcision is a cutting away, not so much of the flesh, that was emblematic of a cutting away of filth, of rebellion, of evil, of sinfulness. That's why in Colossians 2, Paul writes of circumcision for us as believers as that which is a spiritual cleansing. He says in chapter two and verse 11 of Colossians, he describes circumcision as the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Do you understand what he's getting at now? God purifies his people and he does it from the heart, from the inside out. And so in Christ we are new creatures having received the circumcision that is performed, it says, without hands. In Romans 2, it's described as a circumcision which is of the heart and by the Holy Spirit. And these are the very things we'll see in Ezekiel 36 in a moment. So circumcision is a sign and a seal of the covenant with Abraham, and it signifies cleansing of the heart to love and obey God. Thirdly, your third word is commitment. 
Commitment. Covenant, cleansing, commitment. Inherent in the meaning of circumcision is total devotion to the Lord. Loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It has the idea of giving yourself fully to the Lord. Let's keep moving through the Older Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Do you see the, the, the dedication here? Fear God, walk in his ways, love him, serve him with all that you are, and keep the Lord's commandments, verse 13, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and earth and all that is in it. In other words, you belong to me. Yet on your father did the Lord set his affection to love them. He chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. So what? Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Turning from evil and dedicating yourself completely to the Lord. And you'll notice as far back as, as Leviticus, I mean, we don't get very far along that this goes from physical sign to the meaning of it all being laid out. And else, it's always been about a circumcised heart. It's never been about that, that outward form. That was just a, a reminder. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. We'll see this concept even furthered this idea of commitment. Moreover, Deuteronomy 30 and verse six, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Here we go. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and persecute you and you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord God will prosper you in all the work of your hand and the offspring of your body and the offspring of your cattle and the produce of the ground for the Lord will again rejoice over you for good just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, for this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach, nor is it in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven to get it for us and make us to hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us and get it and make us to hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away to worship and serve, 
other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which I swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. You see, a person who was circumcised inwardly was one who was totally given to the Lord, totally given. Their life was to serve the Lord. Their life was about honoring the Lord. Their life is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says that Christ is our life. We're totally given to him. We're totally dedicated to him. And this is the worship and the honor that God rightfully deserves and that he rightfully commands, but there was a problem. There is a problem. There remains a problem. What is it? How have you done, by the way? Living a life of total devotion to the Lord your God. How's it gone for you, obeying his commandments, honoring him, with the first fruits of your life in every area, every thought, every motivation, wholly dedicated to him. How's it going? You see, the Jews had a sinking sense of that themselves. Who's able to do this thing? Well, I didn't make much of it when I read it, but maybe you noted it back in verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. No one is able to do it in their own strength, but this is something God is the great surgeon. God puts he scrubs and he puts on his surgical gown and he goes to work in the sinner's heart to accomplish what the sinner cannot accomplish for himself. Paul brings this up in Romans 2.25. He says, for indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. What he's saying is, if you're gonna try and pursue that course to relationship with God, you're gonna try and take that path to heaven, well, yep, you better be circumcised. It's of value then, but understand this, he says, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If you can't keep the law at every point, you've got to understand that little minor snip on the eighth day of your life that you were barely conscious to even know what was happening will not credit you with God. Brothers and sisters, in our context, it doesn't matter if you're baptized. It doesn't matter if your grandparents were Christians. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or a Methodist. It, none of those things. It doesn't matter what you give philanthropically to the poor. What matters is Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I will preach nothing else but that. 
That's why in Galatians, he says, look, if I preach circumcision, why is everybody breathing down my neck? Somebody once said that the way you can tell you're preaching the gospel the right way is when people get super upset at you for it and misunderstand you to be saying that, that, that basically law is a non-issue. Because when it comes down to making it to heaven, the law is a non-issue, praise be to God. Because you couldn't keep it and neither could I. And that's the very thing that, that Peter comes to as that early gathering of the saints, the, the, the pastoral leadership, the apostles, they all come to Jerusalem. Because there have been some people who have come from the church in Jerusalem and they, they've come down and they have begun to infiltrate other churches. These were the Judaizers. And they were saying, yeah, Christ is fine, but you've got to keep the law too. You must be circumcised. And so they go up to Jerusalem to debate this matter and to have a discussion. And they, they come to this conclusion. Peter is, is reasoning with them because Peter understood the, <laughs> the implication of telling the Gentile they must be circumcised. Peter says, to, to the whole crowd, he says, now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Could Abraham keep the law? No. Just choose your all-star team. Could Moses keep the law? No. Elijah? Uh-uh. Name the person. There's one name who kept the law. What's the name? Right. Exactly. You're going to put the Gentiles under a law that neither we nor our fathers could keep? You think the Gentiles are going to be able to maintain the holy standard that God requires? You see, this was a very meaningful symbol. And the whole message really of the Old Testament and the history of Israel is that God demands a people who are both morally clean and totally committed and mankind is unable to be either because we are sinners. You had to be circumcised in the flesh, yes, but only as it was a sign of that spiritual circumcision that had happened in the heart. And so if this is going to happen, well, God is going to have to do it. Flip now over to Ezekiel in chapter 36. And again, there are multiple texts for every one of these that we could have gone to. You're going to have to go past the Psalms and the major prophets. And you'll get to Ezekiel there. In verse thir chapter 36... This is as concise a statement of this sort of thing as I could think of in the Old Testament. Verse 24, for I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Now note this, I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Note how all of this, I, 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 this is God speaking. I will take you from the nations and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness 
and your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You remember what Israel was doing with the statutes and ordinances of God before? Do you see the transformation of heart, the softness of heart, the cleanliness of life, the commitment to love the Lord their God, all with a new heart, a new spirit, God's spirit to indwell. That is the Holy Spirit circumcising the heart through faith so that what? So that we lead the kind of life, not perfect, no, not yet. In heaven, yes, but as long as we're in the flesh still, we, we struggle to live perfectly, of course, but there is going to be a new inclination of the life, new desires, new longings, new drive, new motivations, and all of it, God's gift to you and to me, because we never could have done it ourselves. Can you say amen to that? What a joy. So cleansing and commitment and covenant, and how would the Lord do all of that? Well, that brings us to our fourth C, and you already know it, right? Christ. Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises given to Abraham, every last one of them. And the sign of circumcision ultimately pointed to the promised seed who would fulfill the covenant, provide the cleansing, and circumcise the hearts of his people through the Holy Spirit so that they would be committed, mind, soul, and spirit to him. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And we'll see this and then we will move back to our text in Philippians. This is just one long introduction. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, well, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. You get that. You go to work. They pay you. You don't say, hey, thanks for the gift. You earned it. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. You don't go to work and someone gives you a heap of money and then you do say what? Thanks for the gift. That's the idea. Abraham believed God and righteousness was reckoned to him. And sometimes this gets lost on us. We think of Abraham as the perpetual Jew from the day he was born. He was not. He was a pagan idol worshiper in Ur. You remember that? And God called him. Why did God call him? I don't know. Ask God. But it was for nothing that Abraham either was or had ever done in his own strength. God had mercy on a sinner. And God called him out and made promises to him. 
Look down at verse 9. Is this blessing, this blessing of salvation, righteousness, is this blessing on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteous. You know what he's asking? Look at verse 10. How then was it credited? How did Abraham become righteous? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Blessing came to him while he was uncircumcised. Righteousness was granted to him through faith, not because he had done anything. Verse 11. Well, Paul answers the question at the end of verse 10. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign, there's our word, of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them. I guess we'll finish up with verse 12. And he might be the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that is not only ethnic Jews, but also who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham is the father of both Jew and Gentile. He is the father of faith, not of works. God's promise, not circumcision. Paul says it's a sign. And we've already covered this, but it's an outward sign of an inward reality. It's not about the cutting away of flesh, but about a regenerate heart. You can think about it this way. A wedding ring is a sign, isn't it, of marriage. But there are plenty of people wearing wedding rings who, who neither love their spouse nor are faithful to their spouse. The symbol is on the finger, but there is no love in the heart and no faithfulness of life. And we call that person an adulterer. The ring doesn't make the marriage, beloved. Love and fidelity of the relationship is what makes the ring meaningful, right? Anybody could roll down to a thrift store, buy a ring, and put it on their, their ring finger and, and tell the world they're married. It doesn't make them so. Someone could not have a ring because they couldn't afford it or their finger was too large and they couldn't find a, you know, a bolt big enough to, to wedge on there. And, and, and would they still be married? Yes. Physical circumcision is nothing in and of itself. It's the heart that God wants. And Paul says it's a seal, and you know what a seal is. It's, it's, a, it's a guarantee of authenticity. God made Abraham a promise. Abraham believed God. God credited it to him as righteousness and then gave him that seal of circumcision to validate, to memorialize, if you will, the actual relationship that they shared together. The Bible says we too have a seal, doesn't it? Not physical circumcision, but a circumcision made without hands by who? The Holy Spirit is that pledge, that seal that we have of, of our, our faith. Again, the parallel here for the, for the Jews is, 
is one of baptism of the Lord's Supper. We would never say because we do those things that somehow that makes us right with God. No, those are an outward expression of, of rightness with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Just so, circumcision did nothing for Abraham physically. It added nothing to his justification. It just, it just represented all that God had done for him. And this is the tension that's troubling the church. This is the tension as we come to Philippians that, that Paul is addressing. There were many Jews who believed in Christ, but they clung to law-keeping, who believed that physical circumcision was necessary for salvation. Which, beloved, puts you, uh, uh, you heard me say, that they, they trusted in Christ. Yes, at some level, they believe some of the facts about the gospel. But I tell you this, if you add anything to that gospel, it renders you outcast. Paul said, if anyone preaches a different gospel, a gospel of addition or subtraction, let him be accursed, let him be damned. This is a serious issue. And we need to be really crystal clear in our head that it is Christ and Christ alone through whom we are saved. But the pressure in that first century was immense to combine Old Covenant Judaism with New Covenant Christianity to add Jesus to Moses, to have salvation in part be by faith and, and then merited in part by works, to have grace on one hand and works in the other. And this is something we all need to be crystal clear about, okay? The law and salvation by grace are two separate paths heading in two separate directions. Understand that. If you're going to try and mitigate your relationship with God through law, that is a dead-end road. It is a cul-de-sac. You will bump into, uh, you, will, you will run that road right up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and figure out there's no way to the other side from here. There's no bridge big enough. Christ alone is the bridge. And Life in Christ is a different road altogether. That is to say that my relationship with God is mitigated on the basis of God's kindness and his grace and his mercy. His giving me what I could not earn through law keeping. His giving me through faith in his son who did work on my behalf. I get all that righteousness. The righteousness of God comes to me through faith in Christ, not of my own doing, not of your own doing, but by God's gift. The law is a dead-end road, and it is a mountain too steep and too treacherous, and no sinful man can ever summit. You will never get up there. Christ alone has climbed that peak. He has climbed Sinai. And he has accomplished all without fault. He fulfilled it. He attained it. He summited. He accomplished what sinners could not. He earned the righteousness necessary for heaven. And he gives it as a free gift to us just in the same way he gave it to Abraham, who believed is this crystal clear or, or do I need to keep going? 
You know the old thing, you just keep pounding it and eventually, right? I'm going to beat sense into my kid. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. I want to be clear. I really do. I hope it's clear. Beloved, Paul writes that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. It's not about your bloodline. It's not about your circumcision. It's not whether you had a bar mitzvah or not. It's not whether you keep the feasts. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. It's not that. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and a circumcision which is of the heart by the spirit and not the letter. So God gives his righteousness as a gift to all who hope in Christ for salvation. And my friend, listen, if you're here this morning and this is new to you and Christ is new to you and the Bible is new to you, maybe you've had some sort of loose affiliation with it all, these are the fundamental things that you need to grasp and understand. Do you see the massive sigh of relief to know that your futile efforts will never get there? You know that. You're guilty and you keep failing. But Christ has accomplished it for you. And what God calls you to is simple repentance and faith. Turn away from trusting in yourself and your own righteousness. Quit saying you're going to get into heaven because you're, well, better than most people. You don't have to go that route. Just face the mirror, take a look in it, and you'll see you're not that pretty morally. And all you have to do is say, you're right, I'm not that pretty morally. But Jesus Christ is perfect. And he will give you the righteousness which will get you in heaven's gate if you will but repent and believe in him. You say, that promise is too good. I say, yep, but it's true. All right, today I want to preach on Philippians chapter 3 and verse (laughs) 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. We can do this. You don't believe me, but we can. We come to the characteristics of true Christians. Remember, that's a debate in this passage. What are the unbelievers like and what is the true circumcision? Note that in verse 3. For we, he's referring to Christians, to those who've trusted in Christ by faith. We are the true circumcision. Male, female, young, old, doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, then you have been circumcised by the Holy Spirit, a circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. We are the true circumcision. These are the true people of God, those who are circumcised of heart. This is the regenerate person, the true covenant child of God. And he lists three things for us. Three corresponding characteristics. You remember he gave us three three evidences or three characteristics of the dogs, the false circumcision, those who place their confidence in the flesh. Well, here are the three corresponding characteristics of true believers. Number one, he says we worship in the spirit of God. This is what a Christian is. We worship, or the word can be translated serve. It has the idea of serving and worshiping. All the things that that happened uh, at the tabernacle, at the temple. We are those who 
who worship and serve God by means of the Spirit of God. In other words, salvation is something that is supernatural. You can't carry it out in your own strength. It's accomplished by the Spirit. And the genuine Christian has something going on inside of him. It's not just that they attend a church or they read a Bible or they say prayers. No, there is a new life in them and that person, by virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells them, is both motivated and animated by that same Holy Spirit and not by human effort. We've made this point many, many times, but there isn't a human being on the face of the earth who's not a worshiper. Everybody worships. To worship means to ascribe value or worth. Some guys ascribe value and worth to their Harley. Some ladies place value and worth in, 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 in their family. There, there are a myriad of things to worship. People worship philosophies. People worship their independence. People worship their own bodies. People worship their dogs and their cats. Man is a worshiper by nature. But what happens to you when you exercise faith in Christ and you are born again as the Holy Spirit fills you and now your worship is directed in the right place to the right one in the right way. It's cool to think about. He's speaking really of a, of a lifestyle of perpetual worship. We worship on Sundays I'm preaching to the choir. Here you are to worship on Sundays. Raise your hand if you're going to worship tomorrow. Yeah, right. How, how's Tuesday looking for you? I know you're busy, but. And Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, your whole life is worshiping and honoring the Lord in all that you do. We worship in the morning and we worship in the afternoon. I need thee every hour. We worship at all times. We worship God with all that we are. We worship him with all that we do. We worship him with everything that we possess. It all belongs to him. What do you want, God? Surely I'll give it just out of gratitude for all that you've done for me. You see, the Christian is one who is called to worship inwardly and truthfully. Inwardly and truthfully. That's where it all begins I know you're exhausted from turning to all those pages, so I'm going to go to John 4. You don't have to. But if you want to. Here's this great discussion between Jesus and the woman at the well, and the woman at the well is really trying to get away from Jesus' last question about her husband. It's troubling her. And she says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She points to Gerizim and she says, where, where do we worship? Where's the place? And Jesus says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The point is, it's not about a mountaintop. It's gonna be happening within you. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. You remember she was a Samaritan. But an hour is coming and now is 
when true worshipers will worship the Father, look at this, in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You see, God sent his Son and gave us his spirit for the purpose that we would worship him in spirit and in truth. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, in my Bible, that spirit is lowercase s, and I believe that is correct. He's referring to the spirit, the new spirit that we've been given by God. Yes, which is motivated and animated by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. But it's not in a place, it's internal, and it is something that happens according to the truth, and it must be in spirit. With all that we have, the us of us, the whole man, the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength, everything motivated to worship God, he's worthy of it, is he not, for what he's done for us? He's worthy of all of you. He gave all of his son for your soul. All of creation is not enough, right? We sing that. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That'd be a present far too small. God gets my heart, my soul, my strength. He gets my all. And we are to worship, note that, according to the truth, that is rightly informed about who God is and how he will be worshiped. I love thinking about this. I'm not sure it's exactly right, so put an asterisk by it. But I believe that worship really is almost impossible for the true child of God. It's a, it's a, it's a reflex response. It's, it's as... It's as if the, the truth is, is the reflex hammer that, that when we hear it, the spirit hits our heart with that reflex hammer and we just can't help but burst forth. I don't know how your reflexes are, but man, the doctor better look out when he whacks my knee. That long leg goes firing forward. It's just the way it is. And so it is when we encounter the truth. Brother, sister, is this your experience to hear the truth preached in truth? Your heart just leaps. When we sing, you almost can't wait to get started. You're eager to be where the people of God are worshiping the true God. He is your God. This is why you serve him with so much eagerness and why your soul is delighting to do unto others as God has done unto you. This is why you would rather be here in worship than be out water skiing today. This is why you pray meaningfully, relationally, dependently, informally. Instead of formally saying prayers or, or going through things by rote and ritual. Beloved, this is why you sing the way you do when you see the truth of our God reflected on the lyrics on these screens. This is why your heart rejoices in the reading of Scripture. This is why you want to say amen, but you keep restraining yourself because you think you've got to speak with your inside voice and that somehow that would be disruptive to all that's going on in here. I tell you, no. Right. Let it out, man. Seriously. We are not a formal group of people trying to keep our hands folded and eyes closed 
And our voice is sort of inside because, well, that's who God is and that's what God likes. Shout to the Lord all the earth. Symbols. If you have an issue with drums, put it away. Because you're going to endure them in heaven forever. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. One tongue is not enough. One life is not enough. Everything, everything that we have to him. Beloved, this is the people of God. They worship by the Spirit of God. Loving him, delighting in him, honoring him from the heart, enjoying your salvation in Christ. Well, Paul gives us a second characteristic of the true Christian. Not only do they, they worship by the Holy Spirit, but secondly, they place their confidence in Christ alone. They glory in Christ, he says. And again, this is a direct contradiction to those dogs who would put their confidence in the flesh who would demean Christ, who would supplant Christ by, by supplementing him with some other religious rite or work. The Christian is one who trusts Christ alone. Christ is everything to them. Christ is their only hope. We don't make any claim to ethnicity, to bloodline, to earthly pedigree, to, to spiritual lineage. We don't rest in our good works or our baptisms, our faithfulness, or our sacrificial giving. No, we glory in Christ. And to glory in Christ, the word means literally to boast. We brag on one person and one person alone. Not us, to be sure, because we have nothing to recommend ourselves for. But we boast in Christ and him crucified. He is everything and we are ecstatic to tell it. All that Christ is has become ours and all that we were became his. Our our glory, our humiliation, I should say, went to him and his glory came to us. Our guilt was his and his righteousness ours. Our sorrows, his, his righteous, his joy, ours. His poverty, our poverty became his and he impoverished himself, didn't he, that he might make us rich. His heaven ours and your wrath his. Now let him who boasts, Paul says, boast in the Lord. So we worship by the Holy Spirit and we glory in Christ and he is everything to us and we are nothing. And that's where Paul wraps this up, the nothingness of our efforts. This is the third thing that marks the third characteristic of a true Christian. A true Christian does not trust in the works of the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. Beloved, again, what have you done to accomplish and merit 
the blessing of God. And how many Christians live? I, I, I have to think about it constantly in my own life. When I find myself slumping for some reason because I didn't get what I wanted and I realize the entitlement mentality that tends to, to, to slip into the Christian heart. And it's not just an issue with our society, it's an issue with us. And somehow we think we merit anything. We don't merit anything at all. Except judgment, that's what we would merit. Paul said what? There is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. Everything about my sinful humanity is corrupt and it's bent, it's weak, it's falling short of the glory of God. And this was the problem with the Judaizers who placed their their confidence in circumcision that somehow that would prove their acceptance with God. Why would God accept them in the end? Well, it was their lineage to Abraham. It was their efforts at law-keeping. It was the feasts and the ceremonies and the traditions. And I would remind you that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. The only thing the law does, Paul says, is brings the knowledge of sin for those of us who are mere flesh, sinful flesh. The law came not as a ladder for you to climb to heaven. God gave it as a mirror that you might see your need. Paul likens it in Galatians to a tutor, to a teacher, to a trainer to one who had disciplined children. And he says the law was given to train you and to teach you and to lead you ultimately to the knowledge that, man, are you in desperate need of a God who would circumcise your heart and change you from the inside out, a salvation that you could not provide yourself. Beloved, all confidence is in Christ. We abandon willfully, deliberately abandon any hope in our performance. Our hope, beloved, is right here, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him and him alone. Our faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed, I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him and he will never cast me out. Let's have the music team come forward. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Let's stand together. And we will sing this great hymn of the faith with all that we have by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Our Lord Jesus, our crucified, risen, and ascended, interceding Savior, how we long for the day of your return, Lord. Thank you for the joy of being able to worship by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gift of song. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you that we can enter within the veil and we can access you directly because of the blood of our Savior and his righteousness. And Lord, we need no other argument and we need no other plea. And Lord, even if we were to want one, we would refuse it. 
There is no other argument and there is no other plea that would avail before you except the precious blood of your son. Thank you for the gift and the grace of salvation. Thank you for, Lord, accomplishing for us what we could never have accomplished. You have provided a salvation which is beyond our ability to supply. And Lord, you have called us into fellowship with you and your son by the Holy Spirit. And we delight even now to enjoy the the wonder of eternal life in some way, shape, or form. Lord, we know the treasure of the relationship that you have given to us through faith. And we praise you. Your ways are right and good, and you are the God of our salvation. And Lord, we take refuge again in you this morning. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for us, and we give you praise and thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen.